This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 30. As you make your way to the 30th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we find ourselves in the middle of the final defense that Job was presenting to his three friends, namely Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And by way of review, I will help you to remember that Job began his final defense by first acknowledging the sovereignty of our Creator. Job realized that God is sovereign and that he's free to do anything that he pleases. And after exalting the Almighty in referring to God's sovereignty, Job went on then to express his own confusion that was causing him to wonder why the Lord was punishing him. Job was a man who feared the Lord and was blameless and, and, and did his best to present all the right sacrifices. And so he's wondering, why was the Lord punishing him? From there, Job shifted his attention back to the Lord by insisting that the Lord alone is the source of true wisdom. And, and so, so he's acknowledging the fact that he needs wisdom from God to clear up his confusion. But then with this recognition, Job went on to inform his friends that he had lost his prominent position there in the land of Uz because the Lord was no longer guiding him with godly counsel. And so he's wondering, hey, if God really is the source of true wisdom, then why isn't he talking to me? Uh, why isn't he helping me to think through all of these issues? Well, here in our text tonight, we find Job. He's shifting his focus once again from the days, the good old days when he was a well-respected leader in his own community to the emotional pain that he was suffering after becoming a social pariah. And as he considered the reason for why the cancel culture there in Uz had uh, targeted him, you know, we also find Job now struggling to understand why was the Lord allowing all of these things to happen? Why was the Lord allowing him to suffer in all of these ways. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, we're going to spend our time considering the turmoil that Job was enduring during this period of time. And with this as the focus, it's my hope that we will begin to realize that God's ways are higher than our ways. And, and sometimes we just have to just leave it there. Sometimes we just have to realize that God's ways are higher than our ways. His plans are more perfect than our goals and his decisions, well, they're more important than the way we feel about them. The sooner we grasp this reality, the better it'll work out for us, and especially when we find ourselves in the midst of life's fiery trials. Now, with all this in mind, I want to pick up our study of Job's final argument, which is found here in Job chapter 30. If you would, look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here, Job declares... But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes, a broom tree roots for their food, they were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as at a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys, in, the, in caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. 
Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's now complaining about the way in which, uh, you know, the situation that he found himself in the middle of, the, uh, the situation that he was suffering had actually caused him to lose all credibility uh, amongst his peers there in the land of Uz. And, and not just his peers, uh, but those who were younger than him. I'll remind you that it was in our study last week, that's when we learned about the days that, that Job had been a judicial leader who had been well respected by everyone there in this area. But then came the days of Job's suffering, and it was shortly thereafter when he was canceled by the culture that believed that the Lord was probably punishing him for living in some sort of secret sin. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Job describing the way in which the dregs of society were now mocking him. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in verse 1. Here again he declares, but now they mock at me. In the last chapter, he, he was talking about how he, they used to sing his praises. Now they mock at me, he says, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Man, that's rough. Yeah, I know. I tried it last week. It didn't work. I tried it again tonight. I blame you. But anyway, listen, Job here found himself in the lowest position within his community. That the dregs of society were mocking him. The sons of men that Job wouldn't even trust to tend his own sheep were mocking him. He says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even put them with the dogs that are working the flocks. This man who was once held, uh, he, he once held a, a position of power and prestige had been then reduced to a place where the children of unrighteous men were looking down on him. The lowest of the low were looking down on him. In other words, Job was held in contempt by those who were contemptible. Job went on to describe the fathers of his critics as those who were unable to provide for their own families. Notice again, there beginning in verse 2, there he declares, Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. In other words, the father of the young men who were mocking him, well, those fathers were too weak to work for themselves. And not only that, but they weren't smart enough to even go and produce their own food. And so they're, they're suffering from want and from famine and looking in all the wrong places for food. And yet these were the very families who were quick to mock Job after he suffered the loss of his flocks and his crops. And so Job is like, why God? Why, why have you allowed me to be reduced to this lowly position? Listen, even the thieves and the homeless beggars were making a mockery of Job's situation. Let's consider again how Job puts it here in Job chapter 30. Look again at verse 5. Here again he declares, they were driven out from among men they shouted at them as at a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys, in caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools. Yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. Here in these verses we find Job. He's continuing to describe the young men who were mocking him. 
This included those who were seen as thieves, those who had been shunned from society and run out of the cities. This also included the homeless who were reduced to the status of a troglodyte as they lived in the caves there around this area. And yet, despite their dire disposition, uh, you know, they themselves still saw Job as a man who was less than them. The, the lowest of the low were looking down on Job, and this had been a man of power and prestige. As a matter of fact, Job goes on to describe the way in which the young men were mocking at him. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 9. Here he declares, and now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Here in these verses, we find Job, he's describing the way that the youth there in the land of Uz were mocking him. And, and it's there in verse 9 where we learn about the way that they taunted him with some sort of scornful song. They had created some sort of song that, that just made fun of Job's situation. And not only that, but his name had become a shameful byword. They were starting to use his name as a, a, a name of shame, like, like if you were to call someone Hitler or Benedict Arnold or Amy Coney Barrett. They were, they were shaming his name. In verse 10, Job described the way in which they despised him and avoided him. And, and those who did come near, well, they wouldn't hesitate to spit in his face. Now, that's, that's harsh. And yet, according to Job, this is how he was being treated. Was there hyperbole in, in, in these statements? Possibly. And yet this is how Job was, was feeling as he considered his situation. Now emo, imagine with me here the emotional damage that Job was experiencing as he went from being the most respected person here within this community to the man that the homeless kids were spitting on. What, what an incredible loss of respect. Sadly, Job couldn't help but to think that the Lord was the one who had caused him to become this byword. And I want to consider how he puts it here in Job chapter 30. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11. Here Job declares, Because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off restraint before me. At my right hand the rabble arises, they push away my feet. And they raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers under the ruinous storm. They roll along. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind. And my prosperity has passed like a cloud. Here in these verses we find Job. He's now informing his friends about the reason for all of his pain and suffering. And I, and I want you to look with me again at verse 11 where Job assures them that he had become a byword. Why? Because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. Therefore they cast off restraint before me. Now who is the he and who is the they? Well, Job here is convinced that the Lord was the one. He, or in other words, the Lord, loosed my bowstring. The Lord then according to Job, is the one who had placed him in this position which allowed the people to mock him and taunt him with satirical songs and spitting in the face and these sorts of things. 
I like the way that the scholars who created the New International Version of the Bible rendered verse 11. Here's how they put it. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. More simply put, Job believed that the Lord was the one who had disarmed him. That's what you know, unstringing the bow speaks of. The Lord had, you know, unloaded his weapon or, or the Lord had taken his ability to defend himself away from him. The Lord left him disarmed and demoted in the presence of the people. And so it's the people then who threw off restraint as they began to attack him. You see, the people saw this as a green light from God to ridicule this once respected ruler. And it's for this reason that they began to rise up against him with all of their destructive ways. For example, it's there in verse 13 where we learn about the ways that they promoted his destruction, knowing that he had no one to come and help him. And in verse 14, we learn that they attacked him from every direction as they tried to ruin his life. And it's there in verse 15 where Job describes the way that he was living in terror after his honor was blown away by the wind and his prosperity vanished like a cloud. Now, as we consider Job's situation here, it's important for us to remember that the Lord wasn't the one who left him defenseless and afflicted. No, instead it was Satan who had attacked the family, the finances, and the flesh of Job. Not only that, but it was the cancel culture there in this area that decided to disparage the good name of Job because of their interpretation of the afflictions that he was enduring. Rather than placing the blame where it belonged then, Job turned around and and became convinced that the Lord is the one who had caused him to suffer in these ways. The Lord was the one who placed him in this position and not Satan. That's how he felt about it. And, And to further prove my point, let's continue to consider Job's complaint found here in our text tonight. If you would look with me again here at Job chapter 30, we'll pick up at verse 16 because Here Job goes on to declare, Now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night. And my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire. And I have become like dust and ashes. Here in these verses, we find Job. He's now assuring his three friends that the Lord was the one who had cast him into the miry mud. And just to be clear, the word mire that's found there in the middle of verse 19, it's a word that's oftentimes used of those who are stuck in some sort of sticky situation that they can't get themselves out of. The word was also used of those who sink into deep depression after suffering some sort of horrible humiliation. And that's where Job saw himself, sinking into the miry clay and and, and stuck there with no way to get out. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the Amplified Bible, they refer to the mire as a swampland of crisis. Sounds like Washington, D.C. But, uh, you know, it's a swampland of crisis. That's where Job found himself. And listen, this swampland of crisis not only included the days of affliction mentioned there in verse 16, but this also includes the gnawing pains that he mentioned there in verse 17, which was robbing him of his ability to rest. He had no rest. And in verse 18, he mentioned the way that his flesh was disfigured 
with disease, probably referring to the boils that covered his body. Now, as we consider all the ways that Job was truly suffering here, it's no wonder that he felt the way that he felt. You know, I totally understand why Job was feeling this way. He was not only convinced that the Lord was the one who had cast him into the swamp land of crisis, but he also believed that the Lord had reduced his life to little more than dust and ashes. And as we take some time to contemplate the way that Job felt about all of these things, we must not fail to realize that our feelings can be very misleading. Our feelings can be very misleading. I like the way that King Solomon explained it in Proverbs chapter 28. It's verse 26 where he declares, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Those who trust in their own hearts, or or in other words, you know, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the seat of emotions, we're talking about the place where we find our feelings, and, and those who trust in their feelings, well, according to King Solomon, they're fools. I would never say that about you, but King Solomon did. You know, those who trust in their feelings are fools. And the, and the reason why is because our heartfelt feelings will deceive us from believing things that are not true. Our feelings will deceive us. This is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah was saying in Jeremiah 17. It's verse 9 where he declares, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked Who can know it? Our heart is, according to Jeremiah, deceitful above all things. When it comes to your heart and Satan, guess which one is more deceitful? Your heart. Your heart is more deceitful than Satan. And you will be deceived by your own heart if you let it. You know when people come to you and tell you to just do whatever's in your heart? Just follow your heart. It'll never lead you wrong, right? Worst advice ever. Don't follow your heart. It's deceitful above all things. And listen, the feelings that are formulated within our fleshly hearts could deceive us into believing things that aren't true about God. With that being the case, it's sad to say that there are so many people in the world today who are following their feelings. They're just following the way they feel about things. They're following whatever's in their gut or whatever they find in their heart. They're just following uh, their feelings as they travel the broad road that's leading them towards destruction. And and not only are, are there people in the world who are following after their feelings, but the church. The church is filled with people who are trusting their feelings more than the Word of God. They see something in the Word of God that applies to the church age. They, see, they read something in the Word of God that is you know, something that we're supposed to, to, to follow here in the church age, but they don't like it, and, and their feelings are telling them something different, and so they follow their feelings. How many times do we make this mistake where we follow our feelings, the way we feel about something, rather than what the Bible says? Much like Job, there are many in the church who come to the conclusion that, 
you know, God is the one who's causing their pain and their suffering, so why would they follow what the Bible says? This sounds like something that you're struggling with, and I encourage you to remember that the plans of the Lord are perfect. And yes, even when his plans don't make us feel good. The plans of the Lord are perfect, even if his plans hurt our fifis. To prove my point, let's just consider the cross of Christ Jesus. Let's consider his passion and his suffering. Did Jesus feel good there in the garden when his stress caused him to sweat great drops of blood? Do you think he was all warm and fuzzy? Probably not. And I'm guessing that his feelings were well, I'm guessing that, that there was a, an emotional storm happening there in the garden of Gethsemane. And, and, uh, and yet we can be sure that his suffering there in the garden was actually a part of the Father's perfect plan. You can have the perfect plan of God the Father and it result in our hurt feelings. Did Jesus feel good when he was being beaten by Roman soldiers? I'm guessing no. Did he feel good when he was being nailed to the cross? Probably not. I, I, you know, I've never been nailed to a cross. But I'm just going to take a wild guess here. It didn't feel good. Jesus did not feel good through the time of his pain and suffering there on the cross. He even cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think he felt good when he felt like the father had forsaken him? Absolutely not. And yet, was this not also part of God the Father's perfect plan? Christian, listen, we have to get you know, out of this mindset that to be in God's will will always come with happy, happy, joy, joy feelings. It's not true. And the suffering of Jesus proves it. And so it's crucial for Christians to realize that there are times when we will be called to sacrifice things that we don't feel like sacrificing. Times when we'll be called upon to give up things or, or, or turn away from things that, that God is calling us to turn away from and it doesn't feel good because our feelings want that thing that, that we're being called to sacrifice. There are times when the Lord will call us to turn off the video game and go study the Bible. But it doesn't feel good, does it? There will be times when God calls us to stop watching certain kinds of movies because they cause us to stumble. And yet those movies make us feel good, don't they? There are times when the Lord will call us to sacrifice things that our flesh craves and that our feelings you know, will pursue, but it's not good for us. Please trust me when I tell you that just because something feels good doesn't mean it's God's will. And just because something feels bad doesn't mean it's not his perfect plan for you. We need to stop following our feelings. We need to submit ourselves to the perfect plan of God, which is revealed in his holy word. And with this as the goal, we should consider how to control our feelings, and especially when we feel like God is failing to answer our prayers. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 30. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 20. Here Job declares, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. 
I stand up and you regard me. But you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Here in these verses we find Job struggling with the feelings that were rising up in his heart. And listen, it's not uncommon for us to struggle with these feelings whenever, you know, whenever the people of God feel like the Lord is no longer answering their prayers. I'm sure we've all struggled with this at some point in our lives. We've been praying, we've been crying out to God, and, and it just seems like you know, God is just ignoring us. And we must not fail to notice here that Job, he, he's no longer talking to his friends. He's actually now talking to God. For example, look back at verse 19. There Job is speaking to his friends and declares he. he he's telling Eliphaz, Bill, that in Zophar, he has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. He's talking to his friends about God. But then in verse 20, notice Job speaks directly to God by declaring, I cry out to you. He's not talking to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar there. He's talking to God. He says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard, you, you, and you regard me. Or more simply put, Job here is accusing the Lord of ignoring his prayers. He says, I cry out to you, you ignore me. I stand up and pray to you, you have no regard for me. And listen, it's, it's very possible that Job is right. It's possible that the Lord wasn't listening to the prayers of Job. You might not know this, but there are times when the Lord chooses to ignore our prayers. Why? Because they're stupid prayers. Listen, if we're praying for something that's in conflict with God's will, he's not trying to hear that. Oh, Lord, do you want me to start a crack cocaine habit today? I mean, no, of course not. And, and as silly as that sounds, I've actually heard Christians praying for things that I know the Bible says is a no-no. I've heard Christians praying for things that is clearly forbidden in the scriptures. Why would you pray for something like that? Or, or Christians who are praying, you know, God, should I do something other than what you've already told me what to do? God told you to join a ministry, and in the midst of that ministry, you're like, uh, you know, this is getting tough, this is getting hard. Lord, do you want me to go to another ministry now? Do you want me to leave this ministry for something else that you didn't call me to do? Do you want me to stop doing the thing that you told me to do so that I can maybe go do... And then you start looking for confirmation. And listen, everybody who looks for confirmation finds it. Finding confirmation, you know, that's, that's like finding a Democrat in Austin. Not very difficult. Listen... There's no reason to pray for something that God is not leading you to. There's no reason to pray for something that the Bible says is a no-no. You don't pray for these sorts of things. God's not trying to hear that. He's already answered the question. 
At the same time, we can rejoice in knowing that those who pray according to the will of the Lord will not only be heard, but we can also be sure that he's going to answer our prayer according to his perfect will. I like the way that the Apostle John explains it. In 1 John chapter 5, there he declares, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. From this we can see that the Lord is ready to hear and respond to every prayer that is in line with his will. And from this we can see that the the Lord wasn't answering Job's prayers because Job must have not been praying according to the will of God. Had Job been praying according to the will of God, then the Lord would have heard the prayers. But the Lord wasn't listening to his prayers. And so clearly Job, well, he was probably praying for the wrong things. And not only that, but he was praying with the wrong heart. Remember, Job was harboring bitterness against God, thinking that God was the one who hung him out to dry. As a matter of fact, let's take another look here. Uh, There at verse 21, Job cries out, you have become cruel to me. Who's he talking to? God. He says, you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. In other words, Job felt like the Lord was a cruel king who was using his power to persecute his lowly servant. And in this way, we can see how Job's feelings were leading him to believe that his situation was caused by the cruelty of the Lord. Now, we know that's not the case, but that's what Job's feelings were leading him to think. We should also notice what Job said there in verse 22, where he declares, you lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success. The success that I achieved, you spoiled it, God. The scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 22 in this way. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. That's right. Job truly felt like the Lord was the one who was destroying him in the storm of his suffering. And it's for this reason that Job was also certain that the Lord was preparing to end his life by robbing him of the success that he had achieved. As a matter of fact, look with me again uh, there at verse 23. There he goes on to declare, For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Now, as we consider what Job was saying, it's possible that he was looking forward to the day when he would be gathered together in the everlasting house of God. Maybe he was looking forward to, to, the, to the huge mansion in the sky where we're going to live with Jesus. Maybe that's what he was looking forward to, but as we consider the greater context, it seems to me that he really wasn't looking for you know, the silver lining of a heavenly home, but rather uh, he's talking about the grave where everybody ends up in the end. I believe that Job is actually referring to the grave where every living person is eventually laid to rest. And I want to consider how the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 23. They put it like this. I know you are sending me to my death, the destination of all who live. In other words, Job seemed to be saying here that death is the final destination for everyone. And as we consider the way that his feelings were leading him to embrace all of these you know, false ideas about God and God's plans. You know, it's, it's just crucial for every Christian to realize 
that the feelings that we find in our own heart of hearts are rarely in line with theological truths. As a matter of fact, you know, when we get to the end of this book, just spoiler alert, Job discovers that his feelings were completely wrong. By the time we get to the end of this book, Job's going to be like, ah, oh, yeah, I was, my feelings were all wrong. Case in point, in the final chapter of the book, we learn that the Lord will bless the latter days of Job, not in the Mormon church, but, uh, but more than the beginning. The latter days of Job will be better than the early years. The Lord pours out blessings upon the house of Job in his final years, which were more than the way God blessed him in his younger years. And not only that, but we also learn about the way that Job would live 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job would die old and full of days. To sum it up simply, the feelings that were leading Job to think that the Lord was trying to destroy him well, his feelings were wrong. And while he eventually realized that the spiritual storm that he was suffering would give way to victory, well, it's here in our text tonight where he hadn't yet come to that conclusion. We still find Job here struggling in the middle of the storm. With this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Job continues to complain here in our text tonight. So look with me here at Job chapter 30. We'll pick up our, our study at verse 24. Here Job declares, Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned into mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. Here in the final paragraph of this chapter, we find Job writing the very first blues song ever. He took his harp and his flute Probably had a little bass drum, you know, cymbals, harmonica, maybe a few other instruments. Tied them all together, created a one-man band. I, I can see it all happening now. But seriously, you know, he's, he's venting all of his feelings as he sings his own blues song. And as we consider the way that he unleashed this flood of all of his hurt feelings, you know, I can't help but to remember something that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 29. It's verse 11 where he declares, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. A fool vents all of his feelings. A fool tells you everything that's on his mind, especially all of his complaints while a wise man takes control of his own mouth. In light of this proverb, we should take some, uh, some time here to consider the way that Job shared all of his feelings regarding his own situation. Uh, it's there in verses 25 and 26 where Job begins to express the disappointment that he was uh, feeling as he insisted that the Lord was the one who had failed to fulfill the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he's saying, hey, I did unto others what was right. And what then came back to me, 
it was all wrong. Let's consider how the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verses 25 and 26. They put it like this. Did I not weep for those in trouble? Was I not deeply grieved for the needy? So I looked for good, but evil came instead. I waited for the light, but darkness fell. In other words, hey, God, you know, I did what was right and you didn't. Yes, Job was more moral than God. Job seemed to be suggesting that the Lord was the one who had failed to reward him with the same level of good that he himself had somehow achieved. Listen, it's always a bad thing to approach God on the basis of what you think you deserve. Because what we deserve, (laughs) well, what we deserve is everlasting hell. That's what we deserve. And those who think that they've achieved some level of moral superiority over God, they are very confused about their own situation. And yet, in Job's heart of hearts, he felt like the Lord owed him more than he had received from the Lord. Job also proceeded to try to prove his point there in verses 27 through 31. There he continues to describe the suffering that was tormenting him. He looked for good but ended up with gloom. He longed for light only to end up in the darkness of depression. In verse 29, he complains that his only companions are are wild animals and nocturnal creatures and these sorts of things. And there in verses 30 and 31, he shares his sorrow by summing up both his physical and his emotional pain. And in light of all these things, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to find Job completely controlled by his hurt feelings. I have no doubt that we've all experienced not as extreme, but similar situations which have caused us to begin questioning the goodness of God. Maybe you've suffered the loss of a loved one. And ever since then, you you feel like the Lord is less than loving. You know, when I was 12 and and my mother died of cancer, I, I shook my fist at God. And I quickly came to the conclusion that, you know, the, that, that, that God is not a God to, to be worshipped. That he wasn't worthy of worship. And it was my feelings, my hurt feelings over the, the, the death of my mother that made me question the goodness of God. Maybe you you can relate with that, or it's possible that you're suffering from some sort of chronic illness and you're beginning to feel like the Lord has abandoned you. And the more you listen to those feelings, the the more you question the goodness of God. No doubt there are numerous situations that would lead us to to have hurt feelings and those those hurt feelings cause us to start questioning the love of the Lord. And and, and listen, regardless of the specific situation that you might find yourself in the middle of, I encourage you to remember that the Lord loves us more than we can even imagine. And, And if you're looking for proof of that, look at the cross of Christ. It's there on the cross where Jesus Christ suffered in an incredible way. Not just the pain of the cross, but he bore our sins in his own body. He suffered the wrath that we deserve so that sinners might be saved. So when you look at your own suffering, if you look at your own pain and begin to wonder why, you know, if, the, if the Lord still loves you or not, just look at the cross and see how Christ Jesus suffered for us. 
the just was sacrificed for the unjust so that we could be saved. And while I realize that there are times when it might not feel that way, well, it's for this reason that we have to stop following our feelings. The feelings that we find in our hearts, they are deceitful above all things. And our, feel, our feelings will oftentimes lead us to embrace unbiblical, truth, uh, un, unbiblical truths and, and they'll cause us to embrace beliefs that are not in line with God's word. That being the case, it's best for Christians to keep our fifis in check just by making sure that our beliefs about God are based on biblical truth and then force our feelings to submit to those biblical truths. I also encourage you to remember that the Lord has a perfect plan for the trials and the troubles that he allows us to endure. And, and I could point to, to, to many different passages, but I just want to consider something that Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, We do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Think about that for a moment. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Christian, listen, the Lord has a perfect reason for every trial and every trouble that he allows us to endure. And, and while I realize that it's difficult for us to endure these days of affliction, and, and in the midst of, of our affliction, it seems like just, you know, just the, the worst thing that's ever happened, Paul says, no, it's just a light affliction. In the middle of it, you know, when we find ourselves in the middle of the pain, when we find ourselves in the middle of the trouble and the trial and the trouble, it seems like it's never going to end, and how could God abandon us in this situation? And it's never going to let up, and we're never going to see the sun again, and we're sinking into the miry clay, and God's the one who put us there. And that's how it feels. But in reality, Paul says, hey, back out from the situation, get a better perspective, and realize this is just a light affliction, which is just but for a moment. It's a very small moment in the context of eternity. Consider, you know, the small amount of time that, it, that is compared in the scriptures to a vapor of smoke. And even if you suffer every day of your life here on earth, it's still just a little bitty blip on the map of eternal life. And so Paul says it's a light affliction, which is just for a moment. But even in this small moment... Our suffering is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The temporary afflictions that we endure today will eventually produce in us a glory that is vastly outweighing any suffering that we experienced, and we get to enjoy that glory as we enter into the kingdom of God forevermore. We have to stop making decisions uh, uh, today based on how we feel today. And we have to get our minds in, into an eternal perspective. We have to set our minds on the things where Christ is seated. 
and realize that knee-jerk reactions based on how we feel today oftentimes destroy our tomorrows. And so we have to quit following our feelings. We have to quit reacting to how we feel. Well, he hurt my feelings, or, or, or that hurt my feelings, or God hurt my feelings. My feelings, my feelings, my feelings. We got to get past this. We got to get over it. Listen, if you find yourself in the middle of a fiery trial tonight, don't make the same mistake that Job made. In the middle of the trial, he starts trusting in his feelings over what he knew about God. And it's a mistake. Don't allow your feelings to redefine the character of our creator when you find yourself in the middle of the trial. That's not the time to start questioning the character of God. No, instead, it's at that point in time in the middle of the trial that we need to refocus our faith on the gracious goodness of God so that then we can stand strong in the strength of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen, as we stand strong in the strength of our Savior, that's when we discover how the storm of suffering soon passes and gives way to the glorious victory that Christ Jesus already secured for those who trust in him. Let's pray.